Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. Father, we do thank you today for your word. And God, we ask that you would teach us by the Holy Spirit. We trust you. We know that you're helping us to not only understand who you are, who you've made us to be, but also what truth is in the world that we live in, that we would glorify you. Lord, give us the grace today to walk out your truth, your word, your ways, so that we might continue to point to Jesus, that we would be a light in a dark world. That's what your gospel is. That's what your word is. So Lord, let that flow through our lives like rivers of living water. I pray for you to bless every person that is tuning into this broadcast, and we pray, God, that you would continue to, as we come together online, refresh us, restore us, renew us, and use us for your glory. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. All right, we've been going through the book of Mark, and it's been a great journey in the gospel of Mark. I won't, uh, re I won't repeat a lot of what I've said, but we're in chapter 10 today. And if you followed along with us, maybe a month ago, we were in the book of Matthew. And so there's a lot of passages that we covered there that are part of the Synoptic Gospels. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Minus John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the Synoptic Gospels, which means 70-85% is going to be similar accounts, although there is various details that are filled in as you read them alongside each other. John is, I think, 90% different accounts. Not that it is different, but it just has other stories, other accounts of Jesus's life and ministry with a different emphasis. And so when you put them all together, you've got this full picture of the life ministry of Jesus and, of course, his message. And so we just want to know that because we've already gone through a lot of the same accounts in the book of Matthew together. So I want to make sure that I focus in on some that we haven't already covered. And you can go back and look at the Daily Word when we went through the book of Matthew. But as we read chapter 10 today, I want to focus on a story that I haven't covered. I've covered it in the past, so if you followed me for 10 years, you've certainly heard me teach this before. But I took a fresh look at it today for about an hour and a half and I just want to share with you what's on my heart as a result of studying it so that it would encourage you. And so here's what I want to do. I want to summarize a little bit of Mark chapter 10. So the first 16 verses of Mark 10, this is where Jesus was asked about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Really, he's being asked about divorce. We did cover that already. And it's important to look at that because most people that I've come across do not properly understand the context of Jesus's commentary, his teaching about divorce, adultery, remarriage. People assume that this sort of just applies over every scenario, when in reality, Jesus was not only entering into a very contextual conversation, but he was responding to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, in a way that would bring conviction to what they were doing. They, many of them were sinning or living in sin, not all of them, but a lot of them in their current practice of writing certificates of divorce. And so we went over that extensively. That's verse 1 through, I'm sorry, through one, verse 1 through 12. Verses 13 through 16, we have a story about where Jesus not only blesses children, which is what most Bibles say, 
but he also helps us to understand that the humility of a child is what we need to have, that dependency. And he, re- he references that for those who are entering the kingdom must be converted to become like a child, not childish, but childlike in our faith and our dependency towards God. The story that I want to talk to you about, or rather the account, is verse 17 through verses 31. And this is historically called the rich young ruler. And this story is actually mentioned in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke as well, although I didn't focus on it when we went through the book of Matthew. So I want to do that today. So let's go ahead and read here in verse 17, um, all the way through this account, verse 31. Here's what it says. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him. Another translation says that he falls, uh, he falls on his knees before Jesus. And he asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him, and he said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard will it be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to him, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But they were even more astonished, and they said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last shall be first. Wow, there's just a lot here. I remember when I first started reading this passage, as I began to study the Bible 21 years ago, it really uh, was kind of face value very simple. I didn't know some of the details that would help me to have greater appreciation for the comments that Jesus made. Also, for the things that we see transpire in this account, but I think they're really important. So I hope to bring up a little bit of the detail to help us to gain a greater appreciation. I think it's really important that we have it, especially as we're learning to do a deeper dive. And that's what we ought to do. But here we go. Verse 17, as we're just beginning to look, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him. I just wanted to highlight this because here we have in other accounts, we're looking at um the book of Luke, and we also refer to Matthew as well, something that they fill in is, number one, this is a rich young ruler. So one of them obviously indicates that he's rich, or many of them, the accounts, but that he's also a ruler of some kind. And so 
It doesn't say that here in Mark, Mark's gospel, because sometimes Mark will expedite the details, but we fill it in from the other gospels. Why is that important? Number one, the man was running, and number two, he fell on his feet before, or his knees before Jesus. These are two things rulers or maybe synagogue officials don't do. We see this also when Jesus uh, has an encounter with a synagogue official named Jairus. Jairus falls on his feet and begins to beg Jesus. He pleads with him to come see his daughter that he might heal her. So this is a really important thing for us to, to note. This is a very sincere person, not necessarily thoroughly informed, but certainly sincere. A person is not going to run to Jesus like we read about in Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, the tax collector there. He's running to see Jesus, and he gets up in a sycamore tree. You see that? So you see this running, and you see this kneeling before Jesus. These are two things that you don't typically see, which I think should help us to understand the sincerity of this man coming to Jesus. Now, with that said, what we also read here in verse 17 is he asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is interesting because as he calls him good teacher, this probably was a form of flattery. Now, that was common for a man or a person to give flattery to a rabbi, and obviously he's in a, in a some way seeking an affirmation of some kind. But flattery was typical, and that's probably what was happening here. As he's looking for affirmation, he's, he's giving him a sense of flattery by saying, you're good. It's important to note that the question uh, helps us understand the concept of eternity that Jewish people had. Now, every now and again, I hear people say, well, Jewish people in this culture did not have any concept of eternity. Because typically, that's a normal thing to hear from a modern-day rabbi. There, there are a lot of progressive rabbis. There are a lot of rabbis who teach today that all we have is this life. There is no sense of eternity, so we just need to do the best that we can with the life that we have. That, that really is taught today in progressive rabbi circles. Um, not messianic rabbis, of course, but um, orthodox Jewish or progressive Jewish rabbis. And so this is actually becoming more popular for people to say that Jewish people, in context of the Bible, did not uh, believe in some type of eternity. They did not know. Well, this man actually is saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It gives us a window and a picture into the fact that Jewish people did have a sense of eternity. And he asks, what shall I do? How can I obtain the un unobtainable? And here we read in verse 18, Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. He cuts through his flattery, and he made him think about the implications of calling him good. Jesus does not deny his deity here, but he's just trying to help this person think about why they're asking Jesus and what that means if they're asking Jesus. In fact, I think Jesus is affirming his deity here. He's saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus doesn't say he's not God. He just says that somebody should only call good, God good, and therefore I believe he's affirming his deity in this moment, getting this person to think about who they're asking, what they're asking, and why they're asking it. So Jesus contextualized the question by centering goodness on God, which we know actually shows where Jesus would obviously be teaching 
the source and hope for all goodness. Jesus is setting up the question and the answer, really, because this person is just saying, how do I get to have eternal life? Do I have eternal life? Can you affirm where I'm at, what I'm doing, who I am? And Jesus just uses his question and recontextualizes his answer that he's about to give. And I think that's really profound. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And he says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Now this do not defraud is not, uh, there are six commandments in Exodus chapter 20 that are mentioned here, except for this one, do not defraud. That's not necessarily one of the Ten Commandments, but a lot of people believe, scholars I'm talking about, when you reference commentaries, various people that have studied way deeper than I'll ever study, they think that this potentially could be a reference to coveting, coveting your neighbor's wife, coveting your neighbor's stuff. So this, in essence, could still be a, one of the Ten Commandments. Um, otherwise, we don't know what it is. But So let, just keeping with that view, these are six of the Ten Commandments. Jesus says to the man, you know the commandments. These are them. And it's interesting, as Jesus brings this up, uh, because these are both attitudes and actions towards others. We know that they're part of the Ten Commandments are how we view and how we walk with God, and the other are how we treat and see one another. And Jesus references really the loving your neighbor aspect of the Ten Commandments, loving God and loving others. Jesus references those six. Isn't it really interesting that he says this, but look at what happens after Jesus references these six commandments. And the man said to him, teacher, I have kept these from my youth. Now, I think this is important because I think it's a sincere response. You know, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, I think it's verse 6, he actually has this same mentality about his own observing of the law. He says, in observance of the law, I was blameless. That's what the Apostle Paul said, because external obedience to the law was demanded. And so this is what this man really thought about his own life. He thought, I am living in accordance with the commandments. Externally, I am not breaking any of the commandments that you have mentioned. I have been doing them since I was a youth. But we know that what Jesus is demanding, and really the only one that can fulfill, is internal obedience. And that's what we see in the Sermon on the Mount and through the rest of teaching. Jesus, what he's doing here is he's setting up the context for understanding eternal salvation and that no one can actually obtain eternal salvation in their own works, their own ability. You and I are not good enough. We never will be. We cannot achieve. We cannot attain. We cannot earn any of what eternal life actually is. There is only one that obeyed externally the law and internally, and that's Jesus Christ himself. But interesting reference here, he says, I have obeyed these since I was a youth. Now, in Jewish teaching, this would have been a very specific reference. It, we usually, it's usually lost on most of us modern readers. But about the age 13, a Jewish boy or a Jewish person would be accountable to the law themselves. It doesn't mean that there was no accountability in their childhood, but they were, to, they were considered coming of age right around that 13. You might have heard about bar mitzvah, and there really are um, these, uh, these rituals, or they're not rituals, but kind of a, 
uh, rites, uh, passage of rites, so to speak. And a bar mitzvah was one of them where there's a coming of age, and now a person is going to be accountable to the law. It's one of the reasons why Jewish boys and girls were to memorize um, aspects of the Torah, if not entirely the first five books of the Torah. And so they, why were they to memorize it? Because they were to adhere to it. This is the whole point of it. It wasn't just so that they could say it or know it. It was that they would live it. And so you can understand the response of this rich young ruler saying, I have obeyed these. I have lived in these since I was a boy. And he's talking about that coming of age. Now, this is a reference that often can be lost on us, but that is what he meant since I was a boy. But then we look at verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt love for him and even said to him, and I, I just want to say that there, the NIV says Jesus loved him. I don't know if you ever stop and think about that, but Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And this is a powerful statement. I think we need to think about that in our own lives. Jesus would look at us and he loves us. I want to bring this up because sometimes we're around different theological camps and what they'll say to us are things like, God's glory cannot dwell with sinful man, right? God is almost like this picture that God is angry with people and he's about to bring wrath upon them. Almost, almost like that that's his disposition. The reality is the wrath of God is coming to a sinful world. But Jesus reveals the love of the Father, that he would take on the flesh and that he would live a sinless life, give his own life as a propitiation, the atonement of our own sins. On our behalf, Jesus would live the life that we couldn't live. He would die in our place. He would rise again to new life that you and I or whoever would place our faith, trust, our entire life into him that we would have eternal salvation. To me, it's so powerful to see the picture that is not always taught in some of what we call Christianity, that people do teach this distance with God. And here we have this closeness where Jesus is looking someone in the face and he loved this person. He knew that this man did not know what he needed to know. He knew that this man was not what he thought he was, but Jesus loved him. It doesn't mean that Jesus overlooked his need for salvation, not at all. That's why Jesus engaged him. And that's what he does with us. He doesn't overlook the fact that we have sin in our lives, but he knows that he's the only answer. And so if you knew that you had the cure to what everybody else had that was wrong in their lives, I mean, you, you wouldn't demand of them that they be able to cross the bridge to get what you had. If you're the only one that had, then you know that you would have a certain compassion. And Jesus certainly has that. So there's teaching that will suggest that God is this disposition of anger towards us. It's not true. Jesus shows us that God loves us. That's the truth. Now, we want to respond to that love. That's what this is all about. That's what really, um, that's what is really on, honestly an amazing thing for each one of us is that we get to respond to the love of God. And we don't have to fear God in that sense. We don't have to be afraid of God. We have fear, the fear of God, this reverence of God. We walk in this sobriety and this understanding of who He is and how awesome He is and how majestic in all of His ways. But we can approach Him right? Jesus shows us this. So it's very, very powerful. We look at this, looking at him, Jesus felt love for him and said, one thing you lack, verse 21, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. 
Now, I think it's important. One thing you lack, that, that isn't to say that this man only had one problem, but there was this one glaring thing, this wall, as it were, that needed to come down in his life. And Jesus pointed that out. Now, in the Bible, when it mentions rich people, typically in the New Testament, wealth is not ungodly. To have wealth and possessions is not wrong or sinful, nor will I ever say that. Some of us have more than others. But there is a lot in the New Testament that refers to the rich. And when it does, it, it typically is in a negative sense. Not all the time, but there's many times when it's referring to them, not because riches are wrong, but when it's talking about these people in these situations, it's referring to the way that those riches were usually gained. And in this regard, my personal belief is that when Jesus makes this statement, one thing you lack, go sell all your possessions and give it to the poor or the destitute, those that don't have, I think that it is pointing out the fact that a lot of people in this culture, in particular those that were among the synagogue, because we know that um, temple rulers were in charge of the marketplace, which was inside the temple, and they were getting a pretty hefty profit, it probably points to the fact that this man acquired some of his wealth through defrauding others, and he's blind to how that might be the case. And so I think that's what's actually happening here. When you look at all these references in the Bible, um, many, maybe they wouldn't look at it as defrauding, but it's taking advantage of. We see many references about this, like, for example, the rich that oppress the poor, James chapter 2, um, the rich that plunder the property of helpless widows, Mark 12, the rich that defraud their laborers, James 5, verse 1 through 6, they live in incredible luxury, Luke 16, and also James chapter 5 while they ignore the poverty and the suffering all around them. This is Jesus setting up for what it means to love your neighbor, is that you have all of this, and how you acquired it might be suspect. And I, I believe that there's an indication here from Jesus, which is why he's telling him that, that his heart is so connected to his riches that he can't see his own need for true salvation, that his heart is so in his riches that maybe he didn't see how he actually took advantage of others, how he didn't truly love his neighbor as he loved himself, that he didn't fulfill the law the way he thought he did, that his heart potentially was corrupt and Jesus was actually calling that out. Now listen, not everybody's going to teach this, but that's what I think. Why? Because when riches are brought up in the Bible in a negative sense, there is typically an attachment for how somebody got those riches. So I think that Jesus is trying to help him understand that some of how he acquired his, some of the ways he acquired his riches were actually not loving his neighbor, but taking advantage of his neighbor. Now that's just my putting that in there, but that's what I think. I think there was a defrauding. You remember in Luke chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus, when Jesus says, come down from the tree, I must go to your house to eat today. And then Jesus, or sorry, Zacchaeus responds to Jesus. I mean, he's just blown away that Jesus would say this to him. And he says, half of my possessions and what I have, I'll give to the poor. I mean, he immediately says, I literally will take 50% of what I have and I will give it away to the poor. Jesus doesn't ask him for anything, but that's the picture of a heart response to the person and invitation of Jesus which is profoundly different from what we read about here. But I want you to remember Luke chapter 19 because it is a good contrast for what is happening in the story that we're reading about. But do you also remember 
that Zacchaeus says to Jesus, right after he says, half of what I have, I'll give to the poor. He says, if I've defrauded anybody, if I've defrauded anybody, I will give back to them four times what I took. And in the law, that is the fullest extent of what the law could de- does demand from any person that's actually defrauded someone. There are a couple different references in Exodus and Leviticus. Don't have time to go into that. But Zacchaeus goes right up to the fullest extent of what the law could require. And he doesn't even piddle around with any other lesser levels. He just says, I will give up to four times, four times if I've defrauded anybody. So I think Jesus is actually trying to draw this rich young ruler into a place with a, so for he could, so he could have a heart response. That's what I think is happening here. I think it's an, not a necessarily an accusation, but it's an invitation so that he could see that he himself in, in his riches, in the acquiring of his riches, in his treating of his fellow man, potentially is not the person that he thinks he is. I believe that is actually going on at this time. And so Jesus says, go sell everything you have and, and then give it to the poor. And then he gives them the invitation that's beautiful, come and follow me. Come and follow me. So powerful, and yet he misses it, doesn't he? Verse 22, these words saddened this man, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. He missed what he was being offered. He was being offered true wealth in exchange for this thing that had his heart. Now, we can have possessions, and we can have wealth, but wealth and possessions cannot have us. And so when Jesus speaks to this man, he speaks to his heart. It has nothing to do with wealth. It has to do with his heart. And Jesus will do the same to you and to me. He wants our hearts. He's always going after our hearts. It's always about our hearts. And so we've got to make sure that our hearts are so available to the person and the voice of Jesus. Because if it's not, then what we will find is we will constantly hold back. And that's not the position that we want to be in, especially as we call Jesus Lord. What was this about? This was a test of his heart. This was a test of lordship. If you really want what you're asking for, then let me show you the path. The path is not about good works and righteousness of your own doing. The path is about giving your heart fully and completely in utter surrender to the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is preparing him. Jesus is helping him. Jesus is building the bridge. He says to him, your heart is full of your possessions. It's in love. I love you. And so I'm inviting you to let go of what you're attached to so that the only thing that you're attached to is me. I mean, this is such a beautiful invitation. It's like Jesus saying, let go of that hard-earned dime that you have so that I can give you a billion dollars. You understand what I'm saying? That's the exchange here. I need you to let go of your sin. Not, it's not money. It's not wealth. I need you to let go of your sinful tendencies to trust in the riches of man, to trust in your own ability to acquire for yourself, because what you're asking for, you cannot earn. There's nothing you can do. Jesus, in a sense, is, he's teaching about the gospel right here. And Paul gives a greater clarity later, but Jesus right here, he's going right to the heart. He's showing us what it's about. He's telling this man what it's about, but he misses it. And I think it's really, really important. You might remember that it was just maybe a week or two ago, we talked about the parable of the sower, the parable of the soils. We studied this in the book of Mark. And in the book of Mark, Jesus gives this parable and he talks about these four different soils and the farmer went and sowed the seed on, on all of these different soils, and there were four of them. 
and I just go into the third one. The third one was where this where the seed was sown among the place of the thorns. And what does he say about the the soil that has the thorns in it? He says that there are the worries and the cares and the pleasures of this life. And then he says the deceitfulness of riches. See the the path with the the thorns. If that's our heart, if that's the soil of our heart, that's not the place that we need to be. That's not where we want to be. The deceitfulness of riches. What happens to the seed in soil like that? Nothing. It gets choked out. It does not produce that 30, 60, 100 fold. The seed that's planted is so powerful, but look how powerful the deceitfulness of riches is. Jesus is calling that out of this man and he walks away sad. Let that sink in for a second. He walks away sad. He misses his moment. We don't want to miss the moment where Jesus calls us to some kind of sacrifice because we can't see that on the other end of the sacrifice is the greatest blessing, which is what we're really looking for. That to me is what this is all about. It's that the world will blind us. Riches will deceive us. That's what will happen to all of us if we're not careful. We have to look at Christ. We have to see Christ. He is high and exalted. The supremacy of Jesus, he is what we want. And when that's not the case, these other things can get in the way. Friend, we can have wealth. We can have possessions, but they cannot have us. And this story shows us that very thing. We look here now at verse 23 through 25, and I'll just read it to you. Jesus looking around, he, he enters into a teaching moment. And he says to his disciples, how hard will it be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said it again. Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now there's various teaching on what it means for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. But it's really hyperbole. What it really is is just this analogy, so to speak. It's, there's not really this, um, the eye of the needle is not like this door in the gate of a city. That's not, there's nothing that I've been able to find where that would have been the case. Maybe you've heard that teaching before. But what this is, is this is just such a, um, I mean, it's, it's such an exacerbated like metaphor analogy where Jesus is saying something huge. Sometimes they would use in a, um, in their world, it usually was used like an elephant would go through the eye of a needle. But Jesus says this big camel going through the eye of a needle, something big going through something small. And you know, the conclusion is it's impossible, right? And that's what the disciples say. That's what they get out of it. So Jesus's teaching moment is to draw out of the disciples a response whereby they would actually say the very thing that they say. In verse 26, they were astonished and they said, who can be saved? And Jesus in verse 27 says, with people it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is queuing up salvation doctrine 101, that what, what we need is what Jesus gives. We cannot earn it. We cannot obtain it. So the only way that we can receive eternal life is that we fully surrender to the only one that can give it the only one that has it. Nobody else has it. Nobody else can earn it. Nobody else can achieve it, but Jesus can give it. And that's what Jesus was trying to help them understand. Once again, sometimes people will go so quickly to the letters of Paul to understand their salvation doctrine, but look at how Jesus was constantly teaching this very thing. See, we shouldn't look at Jesus through the eyes of Paul. 
we need to look at we need to look at the life, the teaching of Jesus, and Paul helps us to understand a little bit about Jesus, but we've got to see the teachings of Christ. In fact, I would say that we we have a more robust theology when we look at what Jesus taught, the depth of it, the power of it. And then we also can further understand with Paul. We we read them together. But I think so often we have a Pauline doctrine without thoroughly understanding that Jesus was teaching the exact same thing. And it's very potent and it's very, very powerful. We believe Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, for it's by grace that you are saved through faith, which is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We believe that salvation is the gift of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that faith is a gift, that God gives us faith and Jesus gave his life, and we just believe upon Jesus Christ. Not everybody does, but we have the opportunity to do just that. Salvation, right, is about grace. It's about grace, and it's through faith that we have this, what we believe, not how we behave. And we need to remember that because you're going to see that again and again and again. And a final thought that I had was that as I've studied this passage and others, sometimes that rabbinical teaching in their day would actually give an advantage to the wealthy. And when Jesus says this, that, I mean, he kind of talks about how hard it is for the wealthy to come into the kingdom of God. What he's saying is, is that he's taking away the advantage of the wealthy, and he's saying it's a disadvantage. That would have been in contrast to what many of them would have heard, right? And so that's why the man walked away sad. That's why the Jesus, that's why the disciples said, who can be saved? Is because Jesus was teaching something that they had not heard before. And so Peter pipes up and he says, behold, we have left everything to follow you. I want some affirmation, Jesus. Help us out here. Didn't we do good? Have we not done what you're talking about? And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, brother, sisters, mother, father, children, farms for my sake in the gospels, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Sometimes you'll hear prosperity preachers will say, see, if you give everything over to Jesus, not only will you have, you, you won't have less, you'll have more. You're going to have wealth. You're going to have a cattle on a thousand hills. You're going to have farms. You're going to have all that. They don't read the persecutions part. I personally, now this is just me talking. I I don't think that this has to do with possessions. I don't think this has to do with wealth in terms of, of money. I think this has to do with family. I think that when we give up what we have, then we receive a family that God's created us for eternally, not just in this life. But in this life, we are now connected to the body of Christ And as we are connected to the body of Christ, we receive through one another. So mothers and brothers and sisters and farms, we now collectively together, what we have together in Him is in this present life is so much greater than we had just in our own individual selves and wealth and our stuff and our possessions. That's not what it's about. And so that's my personal view on that. I know that sometimes people disagree, but prosperity teachers will make you think that if you give everything to Jesus, He will give you back that and so much more. Here's what is true. Jesus will always take care of you, right? The righteous do not have to beg for bread. This is the reality, is, is that right now I'm worth praying through how much to give to what has happened in Beirut. 
We're also praying through how much we're supposed to be giving to the pastors all over the world through COVID-19 shutdowns, no longer have support. A lot of support has been taken from these pastors all over the world. They don't have jobs, so they can't work for a living. And so we're praying through how much money that we can give to support them through Foursquare Disaster Relief, World Vision, and other great organizations. Why are we doing that? Because we're part of the body of Christ. What is that? How does that help me understand this? Because when people give themselves, they give their all for Jesus, they have somebody across the world that's thinking about them. Why? Because we are brothers and we are sisters and we are fathers and we are mothers and we are one together in one body. That's how I see this scripture, because we are now connected together with the same purpose to glorify Jesus, to bring his message, to do what he calls us to do. This is not about having more individual wealth. This is about having true wealth, the wealth of heaven which comes through relationship, which comes through family, which filters on down through King Jesus, who is the head of the body. And I think sometimes we get it twisted. And so, yes, in this life we do receive, but it's not just about our individual wealth. And that we have to knock out. This man walked away sad because of what he was personally losing, but he was blind to what he was actually going to gain if he would follow what Jesus says. Now, here's a thought that I had as we close, and I just wanted to bring this up because I was thinking about the parable in Matthew chapter 13, and it talks about the kingdom of God is like, it's like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field, and for joy over it, he sold everything he, he had and went and bought that field because of that treasure. A different interpretation of, of that verse, but I, it's Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 and 45, I believe, or 46. And so what I believe is that this person found something in the kingdom of God, of course, the king, that was worth giving everything for. So here's my question. This man here in this passage that we read today, he was sad that he would have to give up what he had in order to gain everything. He didn't see, he didn't see the exchange, that he was actually getting more. He didn't see it, so he was sad. The parable that Jesus brings up in Matthew 13 this person was willing to sell everything in order to buy the field because they found something that was worth everything they had. My question is this, have we found something in Christ that is worth giving everything for? Because if we haven't, then maybe we haven't found Christ. And that isn't to indict you or anybody that would listen to me. It is to say that Jesus is worth everything. His kingdom is worth everything. And if we believe in and we somehow to adhere to a lesser version. It is not the Christianity that the Bible teaches. And so we've got to come to the place where we see the Jesus that is worth everything. And he thinks that we're worth it all. I mean, look what he gave his own life. So in this divine exchange, we don't want to hold back. Casual Christianity is not going to make it. We pray that God would give us a holy hunger, a passion for him, just like we see that he has a passion for us. He gave everything. He didn't, he didn't hold back anything. Gave his own life. And so what he's calling us to do is to give all of our life, all of our heart and everything to him. Have we found something in Jesus? Have we found the Jesus that is worth giving everything for? If we haven't, then we need to surrender to him because he is worth everything. This story is a great example of how the deceitfulness of riches and wealth can just blind us to what we're really getting in Christ, both in this life and the life that is to come. Amen. So let's ask God to touch our hearts. Give us passion for him. Help us to see in him what we really need to see. That's what I want to pray, uh, pray into today for you and for me. Father, we do thank you today for your word. 
God, I thank you for this story, this example, the rich young ruler. And I pray, God, for all of us as we're listening today, as we're reading today, as we're studying Mark chapter 10 today, and we see this example, I pray, God, that our hearts would burn with passion to love you like never before, that we wouldn't hold back anything, and that we would realize the divine exchange is where we receive everything from you. And whatever we have to give up, it's not about wealth, but whatever we have to let go of, making sure that whatever we have does not have us. I pray, God, that we would be able to put it all on the altar and that if you say, let this go, we let it go. And that our test of lordship, are we really following you? Are we really serving you? Are we really obeying you? I pray that we would always, always step up to whatever you say, whatever you ask, and be willing to take the steps of faith that you're asking, that you're requiring of us. Because really, we know that we can trust where you're leading us. We're just here to follow. Lord, I pray that riches would not deceive us. I pray that this world would not deceive us, that the pleasures and the cares and the worries of this life would not choke out the seed that you've planted, the fruit that you want to bear in our lives. So we ask you, God, that you would give us revelation, open our eyes, open our hearts to follow you wholeheartedly and hold nothing back in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.